As promised, I want to discuss next Bonifer's account of realm thinking, his critique of dividing life in the church from life in the world. I'll begin on page 55, still in that chapter on Christ, reality, and the good. So it's, it's in paragraph 40, in the middle of that page, 55. In Christ, we are invited to participate in the reality of God and the reality of the world at the same time, the one not without the other. The reality of God is disclosed only as it places me, or you, completely into the reality of the world. The reality of God is disclosed only as it brings me into worldliness. And you'll see, as we look at other passages, not only in ethics, but also in his letters and papers from prison, that there is a kind of good worldliness that Bonhoeffer is identifying as the purpose of God, right? God's work in making us the creatures we are and in shaping us in the way that we are shaped in Christ by the Spirit is to bring about this good worldliness. I find the reality of the world always already born, accepted, and reconciled in the reality of God, right? So God brings me to the world for the sake of the world, and in the world I find that God is already present there, right? So in in Surprise by God, and I can't remember the, which chapter it is off the top of my head, but I I compare two images. One of them is Christ in the bread lines, shows Jesus standing kind of in the midst of these hungry people waiting to be fed. And then a sketch, I think it was originally a woodcut by David Jones, that shows the sending of the apostles, right? So there's this kind of Christ behind the disciples, sending them out into the world, and then Christ in the midst of the needy waiting to be fed. And I and I tried to argue there, and I think this is here's yet another place I'm deeply influenced by Bonhoeffer, is that God is always the one sending us and the one we're sent to. God is is the one from whom we move and toward whom we move and in whom we move. Right? He's the source and the goal, and the guide, the, the beginning and the end and the middle, as Maximus Confessor would have it, of, of all that we do. And it's all for the sake of bringing creation into the full communion of God, so that God is all in all. That, that and nothing less than that is, is the aim. In fact, Bonhoeffer says, that is the mystery. The very next sentence is, that is the mystery of the revelation of God in the human being, Jesus Christ, right? So that the same communion between the divine and the human that's happening in the person, Jesus, Mary's son, is the communion that's meant for all things. Every cactus, every wolf, every kangaroo, every atom, every human being, of course, everything, everything is meant to be brought up into that same intimacy where God is all in all, everything to everything and everything in everything. So he he wants, because of that, he wants to resist at every turn any kind of division between private and public or soul and body or spirituality and politics or church and world. And, and this is one of the driving concerns, not just of this book, but of, of everything that Bonifer does, I think, it is this kind of insistence that the reality of God is in the reality of the world, and that the closer we come to God, the more in touch we are with reality, and the more in touch we are with reality, the more we are opened up to God. 
So uh, skipping down just a few lines, he says, the question is how the reality in Christ, which has long embraced us and our world within itself, works here and now, or in other words, how life is to be lived in it. What matters is participating in the reality of God and the world in Jesus Christ today. Participating in the reality of God and the reality of the world, both as we are in Christ. And he then turns to Colossians, as I mentioned, which is a deeply influential text for him, Colossians and Ephesians. And he argues, and, and I don't, I, th- I think, you know, historians would challenge a lot of the details here. And I, I don't think we want to take this at face value. I th- in, other, in other words, I think the history of the, the problem is more complicated than his account here allows. But it's still a, a real problem that he's identifying. His argument is that they're at the peak of the what he calls the high middle ages, and then in the pseudo-Reformation thought of the post-Reformation period, reality is split into two parts. Right, so reality splits into the world and the church, between spirituality and politics, between kind of personal life, private life, the life of the mind and the heart, the life of faith, and then the public life of politics and military service, social responsibility, etc. And the concern of ethics then under those under that splitting, which again he argues happens as a result of the problems in medieval Catholic political arrangements, socio-political arrangements, and and Catholic theology, and then the fallout after the Reformation. So that if if you understand the Reformation as a kind of corrective of the problems in medieval Catholicism and the politics that have kind of gathered around the papacy, then the post-Reformation period is the fallout from the failures of that corrective. And and he argues that the, the work of ethics kind of falls apart under those divisions after that splitting. On the next page, page 57, he talks, and again, here this is broad brush. I don't think this, of course, the reality is more complex than this, but he makes this distinction between the monk and the cultural Protestant, right? So you kind of have the ideal of the Catholic Middle Ages, and in some ways the ideal of the patristic era as well, the monk who turns from the world to God, and then the cultural Protestant who wants to remake the world, kind of drawing on Christian language and Christian ideas and Christian practices, but bent to a very much this worldly end. A kingdom, so the kingdom of God become becomes a metaphor for the establishment of a national or ethnic utopia, essentially. And again, the history is much more complicated than that, but there there is, I think, uh, it, it is a generalization that is illuminating, right? And I don't want to get bogged down in pulling apart the ways in which the history is more complicated. But just just to point to, there is this problem in the modern world of thinking in terms of realms, right? Separating out what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar. What, what matters for my soul's salvation and what the state has the right to demand of my body, 
on page 59, oh, page 58. Let me come back to that for just a moment. As hard as it may now seem to break the spell of this conceptual framework of realms, in other words, it's just, it's everywhere in our imagination. It's, it's so deep. It is our imagination in some way, not just shaping it, but is basic to the, to the essence of it. It is just as certain that this perspective deeply contradicts both biblical and Reformation thought. Therefore, bypassing reality, there are not two realities, but only one reality, and that is God's reality revealed in Christ in the reality of the world. God is in Christ, Christ is in the world, and the world is in Christ, and Christ is in God. Partaking in Christ, we stand at the same time in the reality of God and in the reality of the world. The reality of Christ embraces the reality of the world in itself. The world has no reality of its own, independent of God's revelation in Christ. It is a denial of God's revelation in Jesus Christ to wish to be Christian without being worldly, or to wish to be worldly without seeing and recognizing the world in Christ. Hence, there are not two realms, but only the one realm of the Christ reality. I mentioned this last time. Then page 59. Just as the reality of God has entered, this is the middle of the page, right before paragraph 45. Just as the reality of God has entered the reality of the world in Christ, what is Christian cannot be had otherwise than in what is worldly, the supernatural only in the natural, the holy, the holy only in the profane, the revelational only in the rational. This, the unity of the reality of God, the reality of the world, establishing Christ, repeats itself, or more exactly, realizes itself again and again in human beings. Still, that which is Christian is not identical with the worldly, the natural with the supernatural, or the revelational with the rational. Rather, the unity that exists between them is given only in the Christ reality, and that means only accepted by faith in this ultimate reality. Well, this, this may seem dense, and of course it is, but the, but the claim has enormous, far re in fact, it touches everything, right? The, the implications of this claim really reaches to all of our life, and that's the point for Bonifer. There is nothing that is not in God's hand. There's nothing that is inconsequential for God because all things exist in the unfolding of, of the life of Jesus. So then, then he takes up this defense of Luther, who, of course, introduces this language, or at least wields the language in a particular way, the language of realms. But he does so, on page 60, Bonhoeffer argues, Luther does so in the name of a better Christianity. In the name of a better Christianity, Luther used the worldly to protest against to protest against the type of Christianity that was making itself independent by separating itself from the reality in Christ. Similarly, Christianity must be used polemically today against the worldly in the name of a better worldliness. And I think that that really is what Bonhoeffer is after, a better worldliness. This polemical use of Christianity must not end up again in a static and self-serving sacred realm. Only in this sense of a polemic, polemical unity may Luther's doctrine of the two kingdoms be used. That was probably its original meaning. So he says, regardless of what Luther originally meant, and this is probably what he originally meant, we can only use the two kingdoms language in order to assert this unity. That we cannot have a church that is an end unto itself. We cannot have a church that's closed in on itself. The Christian life cannot care less about what happens in the world, but also 
The world cannot be left to run on its own steam. Like the world must answer to the truth delivered in Jesus Christ, the truth revealed about God and about humanity in Jesus Christ. So then he goes on to characterize what realm thinking is. And here's where Bonhoeffer's account, I think, starts to really press in on what most of us will have known. Realm thinking, this is paragraph 46 on page 60, realm thinking as static thinking is, theologically speaking, legalistic thinking. This is easy to show. When the worldly establishes itself as an autonomous sector, this denies the fact of the world's being accepted in Christ, the grounding of the reality of the world in revelational reality, and thereby the validity of the gospel for the whole world. The world is not perceived as reconciled by God in Christ, but as a domain that is still completely subject to the demands of Christianity, or in turn, as a sector that opposes its own law against the law of Christ. Where on the other side, what is Christian comes on the scene as an autonomous sector, the world is denied the community that God has formed with it in Christ. A Christian law that condemns the, the law of the world is established here, and is led, unreconciled, into battle against the world that God has reconciled to himself. As every legalism flows into lawlessness, every gnomism into antinomianism, every perfection into libertinism, so here as well. A world existing on its own, withdrawn from the law of Christ, falls prey to the severing of all bonds and to arbitrariness. A Christianity that withdraws from the world falls prey to unnaturalness, irrationality, triumphalism, and arbitrariness, right? So that once you separate Christ from the world, the church from the world, the soul from the body, spirituality from politics, once you separate them, then they, they both fall into arbitrariness. So because we're we're cut off from the source that is the life of God, that is the truth of God and the wisdom of God. And so I think I want to come back to the text of Bonifer, but just just to reflect for a moment, I think this is what you get when you're shaped, we are shaped in churches that separate preaching of the gospel from concern with social justice. Right? That's, a, that's a reflection of realm thinking in which, and, and I'm speaking for myself here, but I think also many of you will recognize this. The Christianity that I grew up in, it, it was exactly that. It was a realm, right? That had its own domain and, and there were things that mattered in that domain that didn't matter outside, right? That I had a responsibility in terms of my relationship to God to order my soul toward God so that I went to heaven when I died, so that I did not go to hell when I died. But that there were other things in another realm, the realm of politics, the realm of the world, where different rules applied and God's rules did not reach that. So the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, if it had any meaning at all, it had meaning only in the realm of my personal relationship to God. It did not matter in terms of public life. And it was my body in that sense, answered to the state, answered to the world in one way and answered to God in another way. And it's, to put it very bluntly, I mean, this is, this is probably too blunt, but like my body in terms of sexuality answered primarily to God, right? That what was required of me sexually was dictated by the commands of God. But in terms of violence, 
my body, violence that I could mete out, that I could enact on others, my body answered to the nation. It answered to Caesar, not to Jesus. And that realm thinking, as Boniface sees here, is legalistic thinking. It's it's a way of thinking that it, it's not personal, right? It is always dealing in legalistic terms, and therefore it is incredibly susceptible to magical thinking. And what, what ends up happening, and this is, I mean, a pretty much a straightforward description of the Christianity that I knew growing up and that I've mo- known mostly in my life, is it is a form of magical thinking that assumes once you know the rules that guide the domain of the soul, the domain of your relationship with God, then it's just a matter of following those rules so that you get the outcomes you want. And that conversely, once you learn the world and you learn how to follow the rules that guide the way the world works, you reach prosperity. And the the goal, stated or unstated, of discipleship is to teach people how to know the difference between which rules to follow and when, but so that they can receive blessing from God and prosperity in the world. And you, you can see this with Christian institutions. I mean, I've taught in Christian universities and colleges, seminaries. I've, I've worked in and around other quote unquote Christian institutions. And as many of you already know, there's always this struggle in those institutions that identify as Christian between what they see as ministry and what they see as business, right? Which is right back to this problem of realm thinking that, there are some things that in terms of ministry, we have to answer to the way of the spirit. We have to, to live by grace and act in faith and be loving and forgiving and patient, etc. in terms of ministry. But in terms of business, we have to follow the rules of business. We have to do what has to be done. And the bottom line is the bottom line. And of course, there's enormous um, conflict when you think in those ways. And the goal of holding those two realms separate always proves to, to fall back in on itself. Right. And, and, and just want to draw attention again to that line in which he says the goal, the goal, you never can reach that goal, right? Your, your attempts to reach it will always lead you into contradiction because Bonifer says the reason it leads you into contradiction is in fact, Christ in Christ, the world and God have been, have been drawn into communion. So notice he says, every legalism flows into lawlessness, every gnomism into antinomianism, every perfectionism is into libertinism. So once you've got this notion that in the public realm, in the realm of politics, in the realm of business and finance, we have to follow these rules, and in the realm of the spirit, in the realm of faith, we'll follow other rules. Once you think like that, eventually you fall into the opposite of what it seems you're committed to. And I, and I think, I mean, I don't think this is even controversial for me to say. That's what we've witnessed in the last five, six, seven years amongst the so-called religious right. And we, we've seen it up close in which people who were supposedly, it's more than five or six or seven years, I mean, but over this last stretch, Right, however you measure it, this shift from being supposedly principled about sexual ethics, say in the response to the news about Bill Clinton and his 
infidelities and lies to the response to Donald Trump, right? Like that, the contradictions there, the inversions and, and perversions are reflection of just what Bonifer's name here, that once you're thinking legalistically and you're trying to preserve realms through that legalistic magical thinking, it will always eventually turn into its opposite. So again, I don't I don't want to fix there too long, but I I think this is deeply insightful. And I want to I, I, I know this I run the risk of offending some of you, but I and, and offending some of you because I'm not saying it strongly enough and offending others because I'm saying it too strongly. And I'm not trying not to offend, but I I don't want to get sidetracked in the details. I think that can be counterproductive, but I do want to stress the ways in which we are witnessing, we are seeing in our day-to-day lives, we are seeing this conflict or something like it that is brought about because we have accepted realm thinking. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give another example in terms of race. I mean, recently, oh, I don't know, several years ago now, in the aftermath of the Michael Brown shooting, I was part of a conversation about protests and riots, which are, of course, those conversations are almost always driven by this kind of legalistic realm thinking that Bonifer's critiquing. And we were... Conversation is slowly, you know, shifting this way and that, and we finally came to conversation about Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the pastors in the conversation. In fact, he was not just a pastor; he was a bishop. Said, "Well, we don't simply take the word of Jesus; we also have the word of Paul, and Paul's word, Romans thirteen, of course, is that we must, you know, we must submit to the rules, and and that." I mean, obviously there's a mindlessness there, right? I mean, in that it's forgetting what happened to Paul, the one who wrote it, and what those authorities did to Jesus, right? So those authorities that supposedly Romans 13 is identifying as divine are the very authorities that killed Jesus and killed Paul. And and so it's it's an absurd read of, of Romans 13, but it's one that, in spite of how absurd it is, still has a lot of sway with a lot of people because they've been taught to think in terms of realms. And so what was being said in that conversation with that pastor was that the Sermon on the Mount, the way of Jesus, yes, it does apply in one realm, but we don't only listen to Jesus. Jesus can speak to me about my salvation, but he has nothing to say to me about elections, about issues of immigration, about abortion, about capital punishment, about who I'm going to vote for or how I'm going to feel about war and drone warfare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are public political issues, right? And this is why, again, all kinds of studies on this. This is why even white evangelical Christians are the most likely to affirm, not, not just the most likely amongst Christians, but the most likely amongst Americans to affirm something like the use of torture against terrorism because they've been discipled. We, I say they, that's not, that's, I can't distance myself from it. We've been discipled into thinking in realms and that there are ways in which we have to be ready to follow Romans 13 in one realm, even while we follow 
say Romans five, six, seven, and eight in another realm. So let, let me let me skip ahead to page two thirty six to to another chapter where you can see Balfour takes the, up this this same theme again and specifically engages the Sermon on the Mount. To be as concrete as possible, let us now focus on the question of the validity of the Sermon on the Mount for human action in history. Two grave errors are found throughout the history of the church up to the present. Again, as always, whenever Bonhoeffer is talking about church history, it's broad stroke, it's generalization, and the details are always kind of alighted, but it's still... I think almost always a helpful generalization. It's a generalization that can spur us into the details and help us see those details with more clarity. Two grave errors. Nevertheless, the church has again and again managed to find the right path between them, right? So the church keeps making, churches keep making these mistakes and slowly through the leading of the spirit, the witness of the prophets, we find our way. One error grows out of the assumption that a principle defines what is Christian. The other, that a principle defines what is worldly. It is also possible for both errors to exist side by side. In the first case, the Christi this Christian pr principle is isolated as understood as a law that has to be forced on the world. The Sermon on the Mount is declared to be the law of all action in the world. It takes the place of state law. Abolition of military service, property, and the swearing of oaths are the obvious consequences. Experience with the failure of all such attempts in the real world then leads one to propose <clears throat> turning the hitherto neglected worldly arena into a principle. The law of the world, having proved more powerful than the law of what is Christian, is now accorded rights of its own, in principle, over against what is Christian, in the affairs of the world, that is, in all matters of political and historical action, it is declared that anything Christian is out of place. This whole arena is governed by the autonomous nature of the world. Things Christian belong to a special, ecclesial, religious, or private domain in which alone they can be rightfully exercised. So he's just saying again what we've been circling this entire conversation. He wants to, to he, and the names he gives these two errors are sectarianism and secularism. These are the two forms, he says, these errors have taken throughout Christendom. In spite of seeming to be mutually exclusive, both of these positions have in common that they understand the Christian and the worldly as principles, which means independently of the fact of God's becoming human. Understanding them as principles only leads to an ex eternally insoluble conflict, which practical action is never able to overcome, <clears throat> and by which it will be ground down. As I was saying earlier, the goal always fails. We never reach the goal because eventually the, the, we're living the contradiction and the contradiction bites back. We, we fall into nonsense and the opposite of what we said we were committed to shows itself. Consequently, the essence of Christian existence comes to be defined as enduring this insoluble conflict with the pathos of a very profound knowledge of reality. The Christian action thus acquires the dark glow of tragic heroism. It is plainly evident that this aspect is completely foreign to the New Testament and the sayings of Jesus. So, again, just in case you're not tracking this, he's saying, you know, we tend to either try to impose the way of the church on the world or separate the way of the world out from the church and then call Christians, if we're 
looking for some middle ground, we call Christians to just live with the conflict, right? You you just you have to live with yes, you're going to intercede for the sinner on Sunday, and then you might have to kill the sinner on Monday. And to be a Christian is to live with that conflict. But you you can't do away with killing, and you can't do away with the fact that Christ calls us not to kill. So you have to live with the conflict. He says that that is the kind of tragic spirituality some see as the answer to the problem of the church and the world, the soul and the body, spirituality and politics. And he says that's just not how the New Testament talks. The statements in the New Testament regarding Christian action, as well as the Sermon on the Mount, do not grow out of bitter resignation over the irreconcilable rift between the Christian and the worldly, but from the joy over the already accomplished reconciliation of the world with God, from the death, from the peace of the already accomplished work of salvation in Jesus Christ. Just as in Jesus Christ, God and humanity became one, so through Christ, what is Christian, what is worldly, become one in the action of the Christian. They no longer battle like eternally hostile principles. The action of the Christian instead springs from the unity of God and world brought about in Jesus Christ. Right. So this, this astounding passage, right, that we don't live with this tragic sensibility. On Sunday, I pray for the sinner. On Monday, I kill the sinner. Or on Sunday, I pray for the soul of the sinner. And on Monday, I kill his body. I, I don't live with some tragic conflictedness with bitterness at this irreconcilable rift between God and the world. Instead, I live from the place of joy that in, in Christ, the world and God have already been made one. The world is, is God's and God is the world's. So then he moves from that to talk about love, which I'm, I'll deal with more next time. And the call of love into the heart of the world, which again is the subject of the next conversation. But I want you to to hear this just from the end of this chapter, History and the Good, page 244. It's paragraph 244 on page 244. One of the abstractions of pseudo-realistic thinking, you remember a couple of times ago I was talking about how Bonifer is constantly critiquing our instinct toward abstraction. One of the abstractions of pseudo-realistic thinking is to define self-affirmation as the only law of political action and self-denial as the only law of Christian action, and to consider them as mutually exclusive opposites, as a dual morality. It is the very position that understands as principles, both the worldly and the Christian, thereby ignoring the reality of God's becoming human, and thus does not comprehend either the worldly or the Christian. Only where the becoming human of God's love is taken seriously can it be understood that God's love for the world also includes political action, and thus the worldly form of Christian love is therefore able to take the form of a person fighting for self-assertion, power, success, and security. It is here, listen, listen to that sentence again, just, just in case you didn't catch it. Right? You have to recognize that in the becoming human of God, God's love for the world includes political action. And the worldly form of Christian love is able to take the form of a person fighting for self-assertion, power, success, and security. It is here that the limits are rather the ultimate foundation of the law 
of self-assertion in political action becomes evident. Political action means taking on responsibility. This cannot happen without power. Power is to serve responsibility. So this is one of the more controversial passages, obviously. And it comes in one of the unfinished chapters. So we don't know exactly where Bonifer would take it, but I think it's pretty clear what his intentions are, what the trajectories of his thought are. And that is, it's it's not we cannot set up realm thinking in which in some aspects of my life I live with self-denial and in others I live with self-assertion or where I assert myself in powerful ways in the military, in public service, but and in my spirituality I'm demurring and self-effacing, etc. That, that 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 won't hold. That in fact love can show itself in my assertion, in my living into the power of the world, but living into the power of the world from joy, the joy that is God's, and in ways that are true to love of God, witnessed in the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. Right. So I can live the Sermon on the Mount, the poverty of spirit, the meekness, the hunger for righteousness, in ways that have political consequence. And if we go back to one of Bonifer's earlier sermons, uh, where he is talking about the Christian responsibility to to the weak, it is astounding right, what he says. Christianity. Uh, let me. I'll get the exact quote because I want you to hear it. Let us be truthful and not unrealistic. Let us ask the question, and this is one of the sermons from London, from his time in London. Let us be truthful and unrealistic, and not unrealistic. Let us ask the question, what is the meaning of weakness in this world? We all know that Christianity has been blamed ever since its early days for its message to the weak. Christianity is a religion of slaves. This is Nietzsche. Of people with inferiority complexes, it owes its success only to the masses of miserable people whose weakness and misery Christianity is glorified. And of course, this Nietzschean critique of Christianity is feeding the hearts and minds, the diseased hearts and minds of so many Germans at the time. That's part of the reason Bonifer's in London. It was the attitude towards the problem of weakness in the world which made everybody followers or enemies of Christianity. Against the new meaning which Christianity gave to the weak, against this glorification of weakness, there's always been the strong and indignant protest of an aristocratic philosophy of life which glorified strength and power and violence as the ultimate ideals of humanity. We have observed this very fight going on up to our present day. Christianity stands or falls by its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power, and by its apologia for the weak. I feel that Christianity is doing too little in making these points rather than doing too much. Christianity has adjusted itself much too easily to the worship of power. It should have given much more offense, more shock to the world than it is doing. Christianity should take a much more definite stand for the weak than for the potential moral right of the wrong. I mean, right of the strong. Christianity should take a much more definite stand for the weak than for the potential moral right of the strong. Now, I think you have to hear this passage from ethics in light of this sermon and other sermons like it, and in what he will say later in letters and papers 
from prison, which we're going to turn to in just a moment. Like that, that is the only way to hear rightly what he's doing in this passage, in which he's saying it is possible to live lovingly in the world powerfully, right? To to bring political power, cultural power to bear in the world in loving ways. That is possible and is not only possible, it's what's called for. It's what Jesus creates and he creates it for good purpose. And so I, but the key is that has to arise from joy. That has to be carried out in love. It has to be carried out in ways that are actually good for those who are weak and those who are bruised, those who have been left in God forsakenness. It it has to be done in ways that are true to God and bring about the good God wants done in the world. And of course, that's easier said than done, but it can and should be done, Bonifer wants to say. But it is possible to live a Sermon on the Mount kind of life in way in the way that you render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So if if you've got this render to God what is God's, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's framework in which you're thinking in realms, you're tending to think, well, I give some things to God God's way, and I give other things to Caesar Caesar's way. But what Boniface is saying is, no, 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 all is God's. And some of that may be Caesar's too, in a sense, in some penultimate secondary way. But the key is to give to Caesar what God intends for Caesar and nothing else, nothing more, nothing less than that. So that you need to live in the world. You need to be in the world in ways that are good for the world and good for the world publicly, not just your neighbor personally, but good for society, good for culture, good for education of our children, good for our hospitals, good for the, the care of our, of our ill, including the mentally ill, good for those who are criminally ill, good for criminals, for whatever prison or police work would look like in ways that, this, that are true to the Sermon on the Mount. That is possible and needs, needs to be imagined. And the Spirit is um, awakening that in us if only we will Listen, right? That that's what Bonifer is is pressing. One more passage from Ethics for now, and then I'll turn to letters and papers and we'll wrap this up. Page 359. This is paragraph 361 on page 359. Thus there are not two sets of values, one for the world and one for Christians. Rather, there is only the one word of God, demanding faith and obedience, which is valid for all people. It would also be wrong if the proclamation of the world placed greater emphasis on fighting for rights, while the proclamation to the church community placed more emphasis on giving up rights. And again, you have that same theme of, we tend to talk to Christians in some aspects of their life about self-denial, give up your rights, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, and then in other aspects of their life to expect them to assert themselves, right? To stand true to their principles, to act in ways that they they feel are right, and insist on their rights. And he says this this is this is a mistake. Both are valid for the world and for the church community. There's a time of quote unquote fighting for rights and a time of giving them up. There is, and that's true both in the world and in the church. It's true in the church because it's true in the world, and vice versa. The assertion that is not possible, the assertion that it is not possible to govern with the Sermon on the Mount springs from a misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount. 
fighting or retreating, a government may also honor God, and the proclamation of the church is concerned only with that. It is never the task of the church to preach to the state the message of the natural instinct for self-preservation, but only or be obedience toward what is owed to God. These are two different messages. The proclamation of the church to the world can always only be Jesus Christ in both law and gospel. The second table cannot be separated from the first. So he, he continues this, this notion, and this is a really important passage, so if you're following along, it, it bears many rereadings. Wherever there is no visible violation of the Ten Commandments, there is at least no offense that hinders faith. The church is now able is not able to proclaim a concrete earthly order that would necessarily follow from faith in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, in other words, there's no quote-unquote Christian form of government. Nevertheless, it can and must oppose any concrete order, any form of government that represents an offense to faith in Jesus Christ. And that offense would be any form of government that violates the directives given in the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is providing for us this icon, this image of the life God wants to nurture for our good, the life that will bring about our best flourishing. Thus, it can and must at least negatively define the boundaries of an order within which it is possible to believe in and to render obedience to Jesus Christ. So the church's responsibility is to say to government, to the authorities, this is how you have to carry out your responsibilities so that people and people as a whole can live into the faith that God desires for them. Not, not be Christian in a social sense, but be true to their humanity as God has given it to them. Thus, bottom of that page, thus the church's message about the earthly orders is derived entirely from the preaching of Christ. There's no such thing as an independent teaching of the church regarding eternal orders and natural and human rights that would be valid as such and could claim to be recognized even apart from faith in Christ. Human and natural rights exist only as coming from Christ, that is, through faith. The next paragraph. Only in recognizing that everything created is there for the sake of Christ and is sustained in Christ, Colossians 1, 16 and following, are the world and human beings taken fully seriously. So this is, and, and, and I'll keep circling back to this again and again, and including in our talk next time on on love and law and obedience. But I, I think it can't be overstated, right, that Bonifer is stressing the point that in Christ, the world and God have been drawn together. And because of that, the Christian in joy can live in the world in ways that bring that unity, bring that communion to bear for the good of their neighbors, the good of the earth, the good of society, the good of culture. And that's what we see him picking up in letters and papers in prison. And I, I will talk about this again next time as well. But, but listen to listen to what he says. I'm going to start. I'm using a, not the Fortress Press edition, but the Touchstone edition, my, my older copy that's marked up. Uh, let's start on page 361 in this book. And listen to this. This is from a letter... I think it's 1943 to Betka. I want to skip down. 
And he's referring to his poem, Christians and Heathens, which I will end with today. He's referring back to that and, and, and asking Betka to make sure that he's read it. And he says, that, what I've just given you in that poem, that is a, a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Man is summoned to share in God's sufferings at the hands of a godless world. He must, therefore, really live in the godless world without attempting to gloss over or explain its ungodliness in some religious way or the other. He must live a quote-unquote secular life and thereby share in God's sufferings. He may live a secular life, quote-unquote, as one who has been freed from false religious obligations and inhibitions. So in other words, you not only must live it, you may live it. The command is the permission, because you've been freed from religion, right? Jesus frees you from, quote-unquote, religion. And I, we'll, we'll talk more about what Bonifer does and doesn't mean by that term. To be a Christian does not mean to be religious in a particular way, to make something of oneself, a sinner, a penitent, or a saint, on the basis of some method or other, but to be a man, a human being, not a type of human, but the human being that Christ creates in us. It is not the religious act that makes the Christian, but participation in the sufferings of God in the secular life. This is repentance, metanoia. Not in the first place thinking about one's own needs, problems, sins, and fears, but allowing oneself to be caught up into the way of Jesus Christ, into the messianic event, thus fulfilling Isaiah 53. Therefore, believe in the gospel, or in the words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, Jeremias has recently asserted that the Aramaic word for lamb may also be translated servants. This kind of observation about Isaiah 53. Then he moves to this, this passage that I want to stop with for now and shift back to the poem and leave the rest for the next discussions that are coming. This being caught up into the messianic sufferings of God in Jesus Christ takes a variety of forms in the New Testament. It appears in the call to discipleship, in Jesus' table fellowship with sinners, in conversions in the narrower sense of the word, like Zacchaeus, in the act of the woman who was a sinner, Luke 7, an act she performed without any confession of sin in the healing of the sick, as well, Matthew 8, in Jesus' acceptance of children, the shepherds, like the wise men from the east, stand at the crib, not as converted sinners, but simply because they are drawn to the crib by the star, just as they are. The centurion of Capernaum, who, take, who makes no confession of sin, is held up as a model of faith. Jesus loved the rich young man. The eunuch, Acts 8, Cornelius, Acts 10, are not standing at the edge of an abyss. Nathaniel, John 1, is an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Finally, Joseph of Arimathea and the, woman, and the women at the tomb. The only thing that is common to all of these is their sharing in the suffering of God in Christ. That is their faith. There is nothing of religious method here. The religious act is always something partial. Faith is something whole, involving the whole of one's life. Jesus calls human beings not to a new religion, but to life. Not to a new religion, but to life. So now, listen to the poem that he had sent previously to Betka. And I'm going to shift to the Fortress Press translation because it's a little more straightforward. But this is the poem that I think captures the essence of what Bonifer is saying about the life to which God has called us as something distinct from religion. It's called Christians and Heathens. People go to God when they're in need, plead for help, 
pray for blessings and bread, for rescue from their sickness, guilt, and death. So do they all, all of them, Christians and heathens. People go to God when God's in need. Find God poor, reviled, without shelter or bread. See God devoured by sin, weakness, and death. Christians stand by God in God's own pain. God goes to all people in their need, fills body and soul with God's own bread, goes for Christians and for heathens to Calvary's death, and forgives them both. That, that's the key. All people go to God in their need, and God comes to all people in their need with his own life, his life-giving bread. But Christians are the people who stand with God in God's pain. And, and this cuts both ways for Bonifer. This Christians stand by God in God's own pain as they see God devoured by sin, weakness, and death. They, they should do this, right? So when he says Christians stand by God, he's calling Christians to do it. It's a summons. But he's also saying everyone who does that is Christian. Everyone who stands by God in God's own pain is true to Jesus, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus is all at once the God who is found poor, reviled, without shelter or bread. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I thirst. And he is the God who is giving bread and providing shelter and bringing blessing. And anyone who lives that way, whose life is conformed to that reality, is Christian. That is Boniface's contention. And, and that's what he means by living in love. So what I'll do next time is trace his account of love and law and what it means to live by love and how the law of God is loving and the ways in which that's embodied in Jesus as a contradiction to the Pharisees. So until next time, keep reading Bonifer and the Bible. <laughs>